Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. We'd like to invite our host forward to receive our offering. This is part of our liturgy each week. Even though most of us give online, it's not only an opportunity to say thank you to God for everything he's given to us, but we also like to remind you uh, once in a while of what your faithful giving uh, launches from Waterstone. I had uh, lunch a few weeks ago with a kid who grew up in our children's ministry. His name was Stefan Lowe, and now today he's on staff up in a church in Greeley with a campus ministry that serves the University of Northern Colorado and Colorado State University. And uh, last year, in 2018, through this ministry, 35 college kids came to Christ through their ministry. That's what your support of our Waterstone kids, I mean, we're launching. I was thinking about this this week. Over 35 years, all the kids that have come through uh, our children's ministry, um, it's had impact. Impact. So, As we prepare to hear from God and receive his word, I say to you, Jesus be with you. Not only is there no God, try getting a plumber on the weekends. If man is immortal, you have definitely overpaid for your carpet. I do not want to achieve immortality by my work living on in the hearts of others. I would rather live on in my apartment. In the 1990s, Woody Allen was the iconic quote master in the movie industry. But his life soon began to unravel. His 12-year affair with Mia Farrow ended when it was explosively revealed that Woody Allen, now in his mid-50s, was romantically involved with Mia Farrow's 17-year-old daughter, Sun Yi. Now, even the most jaded Hollywood observers were scandalized by the inappropriateness of this relationship, but not Woody Allen. In fact, when a reporter challenged him, his rationalization of the relationship was this. Well, the heart wants what it wants. Woody Allen there quoting Blaise Pascal from the 17th century, who wrote, the heart has its reasons which reason does not know. Jesus Christ taught that the center, the core of the human personality is the heart, that who we are and what we do is determined by the condition of our heart that we are not robots who can be programmed to function in a certain way, nor are we animals that operate hour by hour by mere instinct. No, we are human beings with thoughts, feelings, choices. And the place where those are centered is the heart. So it is not surprising that with these eight beatitudes that describe life in God's kingdom, a follower of Jesus, 
that he comes with one straight at the heart. He says, flourishing are the pure in heart because they will see God. Now, each week, these Beatitudes have hit us pretty hard, but I'm convinced, and we could have coffee and talk about this, it would be a great discussion. I'm convinced this is the hardest hitting one. Why? Because my guess is, when most of us walked in the room this morning, we would be reluctant to say about ourselves, I have a pure heart. We all know, in honest moments, how impure our heart is, how we have been prone to wonder, how far short of God's holiness and glory we fall. A pure heart? Come on. So, we need to ask the question. I mean, we vitally need to ask the question this morning. Jesus, you want pure hearts? What's a pure heart? And then after that, we're gonna see Jesus discussing with his religious leaders how to get a pure heart. And then at the end, we're gonna talk about the motivation for a pure heart. Seeing God, what does that mean? What's a pure heart? What does it look like? What does it mean to see God? Are you ready? Okay, right, just, just check in there. Let's start with the heart. The heart is what makes us tick. Pascal was right, by the way, uh, when he said that the heart has its reasons, which reason doesn't know. By the way, did you know Blaise Pascal was a Christ follower? This mathematician and philosopher of the 17th century, strong Christian. The heart has its reasons, which reason does not know. He's not saying there that we should bypass the intellect, nor is he saying we should cave to our emotions. But what he is saying is the heart is much more than emotions and much more than intellect. The heart is the center. It, it's, it's everything. Proverbs 4.23, everything flows from the heart. Thoughts, feelings, and choices are all in the heart, which is why Jesus focuses on the heart. The heart is the thing. It's the center. We're going to do just a two-minute flyover of the entire Bible and see God's teaching that the heart is the thing. It's everything. First Samuel 16, when Samuel and the Lord are dialoguing about how they're going to choose King David as the next king of Israel, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Ecclesiastes. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. To Jeremiah, you seek me and find me when you seek me with all. And then to the New Testament, Romans, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Jesus, God, is revealing to us that the core of human existence resides in the human heart. The heart matters most. So we focus there. And again, thus, it's not surprising that Jesus wants pure hearts. 
So what is a pure heart? Well, the word pure, you've probably heard of the Greek word uh, and our English words catharsis or cathartic. It's this idea of cleanliness. In fact, it has two aspects of meaning, and that's the main one as it's used 24 times in the New Testament. Pure means clean. No impurities, no germs, no dirt, clean. I have a friend who is the facilities director at a new hospital that's opening at Lucent and C470, and I had the privilege of doing a tour with him before the hospital opened, and we spent about 20 minutes in a new operating room, and I learned some amazing things. In fact, uh, what I remember and would share with you is I learned two important numbers in an operation room. First, 90. There's no 90 degree angles in an OR. The floor slopes up, the ceiling slopes down, the room is round. Why? Because germs and bad stuff get lost in corners. And so this room needs to be wiped down multiple times a day, hosed down every day. And it's round so that there are no places where antiseptic cannot reach. The other number, 12. I learned that in this new state-of-the-art operating room, Every 12 minutes, every molecule of that room is sucked out and replaced by new, fresh air. 12 minutes, the room is entirely circulated. Hospitals spend millions of dollars on the heart of the hospital, which is the OR, on air filtration systems. And the technology is amazing in what they do. And yet, you and I, and rightly so, are still hesitant to go into an operating room pure, no germs, clean, no impurities. That's the first idea of what it means to have a pure heart. But there's also a second emphasis in the way the word's used. It not only means clean, but it means clean through and through. It's, it's, let's change the image to gold. What do we mean when we say pure gold? We mean that in that bar of gold, it's all gold and only gold. There's no other metal substance in that gold. It's pure, it's unalloyed, unadulterated gold. When I think of clean through and through, when I think of purity being through and through, I, I think of Michael Scott's pure hatred for Toby Flanderson on The Office. There is not an ounce of Michael Scott that ever wants to see Toby come out of the annex in the office. It's a unadulterated hate. Every fiber of his being. So we bring those together, scholars do, and they say, well, clean, through and through, brought together. What is a pure in heart person? A pure in heart person is a person who has, here it is, an undivided heart undivided, not a heart with compartments for family, job, uh, 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 church, whatever. No, one heart that is filled clean through and through with all of God. Søren Kierkegaard, yes, I guess this is Philosopher's Weekend at Waterstone. Søren Kierkegaard, another Christ follower, he once wrote a book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. That's a good definition to will one thing. A person who is pure in heart wills one thing. And what is that one thing? God. 
God. They want one thing, and that thing is God. Now, what does that look like? Or, as we're going to see from Matthew 15, maybe what it doesn't look like. So, let's, let's see a picture of it. Put yourself in the audience there. Jesus is talking now. And uh, imagine the questions and, and the observations that you would be making if you're in the audience. In Matthew 15, Jesus and his pastors are going to be talking about what makes a person pure in heart. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Here it is. They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and you know, one thing I would just pay attention to Jesus, what should we say? Lack of tact through this. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Here it is. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into a mouth, someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were, I think this is a silly question, do you think, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? As if Jesus cares. He replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Now, this is a story about hand washing, but it's not the kind of hand washing where your mom asks you to wash up before lunch. It's not about germs, it's not about etiquette, it's about ritual defilement. It's about a religious ceremony that you would undergo to show everyone else how spiritual you are. You see, in the Roman, in the Jewish world of Jesus' day, which went far, far beyond the original law of Moses, they believed that a person, a Jewish person, could become defiled by touching or eating the wrong things. If you touched a dead person, if you touched a diseased person, if you ate unclean food, or if you touched a Gentile or anything a Gentile had touched, like money or clothes, you would become ceremonially unclean. You didn't lose your salvation, you know, nothing like that, but you weren't able to go to the synagogue or you weren't able to celebrate a Jewish holiday until you went through this public ritual where everyone would know, oh, you're spiritual now and you're, you're clean. 
And it was, you know, spelled out with a dozen extra laws that they made. You have to hold your hands a certain way, spread your fingers, people had to pour water over it. It was the most public religious ritual that a Jew would undergo to show everyone else how spiritual they were. Now, a couple of thoughts on this. First, we're kind of looking down our noses and saying, wow, yeah, that's, we would never do that. <laughs> I, I knew of a church in upstate New York that called an, a young pastor, a new pastor, and he came, and uh, within weeks, he could sense something wasn't right. People were kind of shunning him a little bit, a little quiet. So smart, being smart, he pulled one of the elders aside and I said, I'm just getting bad vibes here. There's something not right. And the elder says, yeah, you're right, there's not. And so he asked the elder, well, what's wrong? What am I doing wrong? And the elder said, well, it's, it's the way you do communion. The way I do communion. And, he's thinking, and he said, what am I doing wrong? And the elder said, well, you're not touching the radiator. Thought through his seminary classes, thought through the gospels, radiator. So the young pastor goes and home and he calls the, his predecessor and he says, you know, I'm in trouble and I'm doing the wrong stuff and they say, there's something about a radiator and the predecessor laughs and he says, oh yeah, whenever we do the communion service, I used to watch over and touch the, walk over and touch the radiator before I went over to the aluminum plates because I wanted to discharge the static electricity and not shock everyone. But the church thought they were the church of the holy radiator. And we think, I, I mean, I'd love to sit down with you and talk to you about your sacred cows and my sacred cows. I mean, what really are the add-ons here. And it gets started, and before we know it, we're the church of the Holy Radiator. Jesus is pushing hard against this whole hand-washing thing because he's telling them, you do not become a person with a pure heart through religious rituals. I mean, I don't think we get the punch of it. In that day, hand washing was the ritual that everyone knew you were a good Jew. What would it be in our culture? I would suggest to you that it would be Jesus walking up here on stage and saying something like this. Do you think you're a good Christian? Why did you come this morning? Why are you here? I mean, church attendance. Did you come here this morning to impress someone? Did you come here out of obligation to your family? Did you come here this morning to make yourself feel good? If so, go home. I don't want your songs. I don't want your money. Your heart's not in it. Leave. Ah. Religious church attendance does not lead to a pure heart. What does? Well, Jesus drives this a little deeper now, a little further. I wanted to put verses 18 to 20 back up there again. 
Jesus wants to be clear. A person with a pure heart is wrestling with a pure heart. He wants us to hear this. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. These are what gives a pure heart or not. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands, going to church week after week, that's not it. That's not it. It's what's in the heart. And I think what Jesus is doing there, if we continue our medical analogies this morning, he's giving us an echocardiogram. What's really in there? Let's just take a pause here, shall we? And let me work through those words with a little extra commentary and make this a time of deeper reflection. Jesus says, what's in your heart? Murder? Before you dismiss that one, remember Jesus will later say in the Sermon on the Mount, anyone who harbors anger against a brother or a sister or calls someone a fool is guilty of murder. Have any hurtful words come out of your mouth this week? Have you been tending bitterness towards someone? Jesus said, look in your heart, what's in there? Adultery or sexual immorality? Most of us aren't about to run off with someone else's spouse this morning. But one of those words is the Greek word porneia, from which we get the word pornography. It refers to sexual behavior that exploits another human being or perverts the gift, God's gift, of sexuality. Do you have anything like that in the secret corners of your life. Jesus said, look in your heart. What's in there? Theft? It's not likely that anyone are breaking into people's homes today, right? But is it possible you're stealing time from your work? Or this time of year, holding money that belongs to the government or to God. Jesus said, what's in your heart? False testimony? You would never lie under oath, but do you ever massage the truth to give someone a false impression? Ever fudge on a resume? Cheat on an exam? When someone asks, how are you doing? Do you pretend to be doing better than you are? Jesus said, what's in your heart? Look deep, slander. Probably no gossip colonists in the room, but have you ever spoken poorly about another person to make yourself feel better, look better? Ever shared a bit of unsavory news under the guise of a prayer request or real concern, ever pass judgment on a person's spirituality by the way they dress or worship. Okay, Jesus, okay. I see where you're going now. (laughs) I'm beginning to understand 
You're not into religious rituals for a pure heart. You're into really looking in a heart and seeing what's in there. But if you're really after this, I'm sunk. I'm sunk. Every one of these. I'm a goner. Jesus says, yep. Yep, you are. What do we do with all these impurities? What do we do with all these compartments in our heart? Jesus says, now you're asking the right question. Two things. First, agree. Confess. Because when you confess, you and I come together in that agreement that you have impurity in your heart. And guess what? I'll give you a clean heart. You see, you can't get a clean heart. You can't make it happen. You can't do enough hand washings. You can't come to church enough. You can't make your heart clean. I can. I did. I shed my blood on the cross. And when you receive me, you receive what I laid down, my life, my blood, to take away your sins, to forgive your penalty. I did that for you. And when you confess your sins, my blood covers your heart and you are clean. John the Apostle, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We do that as individuals, but remember that the Beatitudes are not about you and me as individuals, they're about us. So the question becomes, what kind of community is a pure in heart community? And I think the answer is a pure in heart community is a community that practices confession. Acknowledging our sins and appropriating again and again and again what Jesus has done on the cross to our community, to our lives. Let, let me... Let me press this a little bit, a pure in heart community. You may have noticed over the past few months that we've been pushing more liturgy into our services. As you can imagine, some people have enjoyed that and some people have written me letters. A lot of it depends, if you're like me, I'm a church brat, I grew up in the church in, a, in more Baptist circles and we had no liturgy. So liturgy to me is refreshing. But some of you grew up with liturgy and it became a mindless, monotonous thing, and even today that triggers you. Well, let me explain to you why we are pushing more liturgy into our services, and then, quite frankly, I'm going to ask you to buck up. <laughs> we are to be a confessing community. We are to be a community that agrees with God about the impurities in our lives and in our hearts. We are to be a community where we are formed through things like creeds and confessions and praying the Psalms. Let me remind you that there are two main purposes for worship, why we gather here. The first purpose is for us to encounter God and respond to him. So we see his greatness like we've done this morning, his bigness, his heart of love for us. We see his attributes and his qualities and his infinite being, and we respond. That's the first purpose of worship, for us to encounter God 
and respond. But there's a second purpose for worship that's true every time we gather. It's also worship for God to encounter us, to shape us, to disciple us, to form our souls. And the way that we form our souls in public worship is by together participating in liturgy, creeds, praying the Psalms. And again and again, when you do those, you're reenacting the gospel. Yes, God, we've sinned. Yes, God, we see the cross. Yes, God, we're assured of our pardon. And we leave here cleansed, clean again. Why is this important? It's important because week after week after week, as we participate in the liturgy, we reenact the gospel. It shapes our souls again so that on Monday, when your child calls you and says, Mom, Dad, I screwed up, what are you going to do? You're going to show the gospel to them. Because you've reenacted it week after week after week. Sure, you're going to get upset. That's good. Sure, you're going to get frustrated. How many parents? Amen. Amen. But you are also going to begin thinking through, okay, follower of Christ, the gospel's in me. I reenact it every week. So what does redemption look like here? What does moving forward mean? What does assuring my kid of pardon look like? This moment in time does not define their lives. How do we get bigger than this moment in time and begin already the work of the gospel in their lives. You see, we come here Sunday after Sunday and reenact the gospel because on Monday, someone's gonna need it from us. That's why we do liturgy. Can you buck up with me on that? <laughs> that was not very hearty. <laughs> I just wanted you to know why. So, we confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us. So that's the first. Do you know the other reason that we uh, uh, can have a clean heart? We can't get it ourselves through religious rituals. Jesus gives it. The first way is through the cross. His blood shed forgives our sins. But also, because of the cross and resurrection, we also believe the gospel and we begin to understand that not only are we forgiven, but we're also, as Paul says again and again in his letters, also clothed in the, gospel, the, the righteousness of Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness. What does that mean? That means... That because Jesus came and lived a perfect life, fully obedient in every moment, an undivided heart towards God, a pure heart, because Jesus lived a pure heart, and we can't, when we follow Christ, the Father gives us Jesus' pure heart. He declares us righteous that we have lived the life we should have lived and died to death we should have died. You see, we are clothed in righteousness. So when the Father sees us, he sees Jesus' clothes all around us. We are declared righteous, and we receive the life Jesus lived. Let me illustrate it this way. A few years back, I read about a guy that had a baseball card collection, 
And in that collection was a card worth $100. It's called Future Stars. And there are three players on this baseball card. The first is Jeff Snyder. Snyder played one year of professional baseball, pitched in 11 games, and gave up 13 earned runs in those 11 games. The second player is Bobby Bonner. He played four years of baseball, but only appeared in 61 games with eight runs batted in and zero home runs. The third future star, see if you can guess who he is, played 21 years for the Baltimore Orioles, appeared in 3,001 games, came to bat 11,551 times, collected 3,184 hits, hit 431 home runs, and batted in 1,695 runs. His name? Kyle Ripken Jr. Now, imagine if you met Bobby Bonner. He sticks out his hand, you shake hands, and he says, Bobby, Bobby says to you, did you know my rookie card is worth $100? What would you say? You'd laugh. Yeah, your rookie card has nothing to do with you. The only reason you get $100 out of the deal is because of someone else's stats. The only reason you and I will have the fitness to live in the presence of God is because we've been given someone else's stats. Jesus' stats are ours, and the Father sees him when he looks at us, and that's the reason we get into the hall. Someone else's stats. So we can't get a pure heart by ourselves through religious ritual. We get a clean heart because of the cross, because Jesus cleanses us from all our sins through his death, and because of the righteous life that Jesus lives and we get his stats. That's a clean heart. That's what it is. But the, the pure in heart, it says, we'll see God. So the, the issue is, we know that positionally, at the end of time, we will have a pure heart, completely, totally pure. But in the meantime, in the already but not yet, we live, you see, because we know positionally we have a clean heart, that changes our hearts and makes us live up to what we know we should be. And we should have this inbuilt desire toward a pure heart, to begin working now to become our future glory self. And what's the motivation to do that? We will see God. What does that mean? Lean forward. Go ahead, lean forward. Are you leaning forward? This is the Christian posture. We anticipate. Look, you will see God. That is the most momentous thing I could say to you this morning. You will see God. And we're leaning forward to that every moment of our lives. We lean forward. We will see God. Are you preparing for that? Are you getting ready? Are you working on your future glory self now? Your heart is clean in God's sight, but he wants you to grow in purity as you lean forward, because you will see God. You see, sometimes I think we forget that. I do. I think our vision gets impaired. I think we do not think about eternity on a day-to-day -day basis. We, we forget that our existence 
is much longer and better and farther than our 70 years here, 80 if you're strong. We forget. You know, we forget it especially around two areas where eternity does not impact us. I mean, as much as a scoundrel as Woody Allen is, he's right. If you are immortal, you've overpaid for your carpet. We forget. Spurgeon, the great preacher in London in the 1800s, he had this saying, it's really hard to see eternity with quarters in your eyes. What he was doing there was kind of tricky, subversive, because in that day when you had a, a person died and you had a viewing, because undertakers didn't have the technology yet to sew eyelids shut or glue them shut as they do today, you'd go to a viewing and you'd look at the dead body and their eyes would open. <laughs> so they would put quarters on your eyes. The subversive part of Spurgeon there saying, hey look, if all you see, if you're God's money, you're already dead. You can't take it with you. What are you thinking? You're dead. You know the other place that impairs our vision in this culture? Sex. Lust. Freud was wrong when he said that God is a substitute for sex. He would have been right if he had said sex is a substitute for God. Chesterton said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. St. Thomas Aquinas in the 12th century diagnosed lust this way, man cannot live without joy. Therefore, when he is deprived of true spiritual joys, it is necessary that he become addicted to carnal pleasures. You know, Jesus, when he taught about lust, and he taught about it quite a bit because he saw that lust is one of the great struggles of life. Lust is one of the things that blinds us from eternity. He talked about two uh, modes of attack to battle lust. The first I think we talk a lot about in churches, the second we don't. The first is, he talked about drastic measures. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, you struggle with lust? Okay, poke your eyes out. Cut your hands off. Now, of course, not literally. No, a, a one-eyed person is not less lustful than a two-eyed person. He, he's talking about you need drastic measures. So on your computers, do you have software on your computers that tells everyone in the world what you're looking at on your computer? You should. Covenant eyes. Do you have people in your life, whether you're a man with men or a woman with women, that you are accountable to? Because in the operating room of your heart, you should have no corners where bad things collect that nobody sees. Get some light on it. Share it with your spouse. Share it with your friends. Drastic measures. Those things will hurt you, but that's the pain of growth. Do you have drastic measures? But the other piece of lust is something we don't talk about enough because what lust is is a cheap form of good desire. Lust is a discount love. What every person is looking for in lust is something that we can only get from God. 
from the one whose gaze on us is beautiful and holy. That's the only thing that will settle our hearts. Lust and pornography and everything that's like feeding pretzels to a man dying of thirst. What the heart really wants is love from the one who's been totally vulnerable with them. Love from the one who's been totally committed to them. Love from the one who is so beautiful and amazing that his gaze is the only gaze that could quiet what's going on of the hunger in your heart. Jesus is the only one who can sing over you and calm your heart. He's the only one who can sing longer than there's been stars up in the heaven. I've been in love with you. And to the degree that you camp on that and believe that and live there is the degree you'll gain growth over lust. Lust diminishes the more we define reality. And the reality is Jesus loves you. Flourishing are the pure in heart because they will see God and we lean forward. We time travel. We define reality by what will be then. But you know what? We also define reality by what's now. Back to Kierkegaard. If pure in heart is willing one thing, then when we will that one thing, guess what happens now? We begin to see that one thing everywhere. If that one thing for you is God, you begin to see God everywhere. I remember a year ago, when we were driving out of the parking lot last night after the service, I rode home with Jan, because I usually walk, I live real close to the church, rode home with Jan, and we have a Subaru Forester 2018, and on our little video screen, a, a happy anniversary card came up on the video screen. We bought the car one year ago today. I remember that time last year, for us, it came down, we wanted an SUV, so it was a Toyota Rob, a Honda CRV, or a Subaru Forester. We test drove the Forester, fell in love with it. And then we had about a two-day window where they had to bring the car down from somewhere else. <laughs> what was really cool was that everywhere we drove in those two days, every car we saw was a Subaru Forester because we fell in love with Foresters. They're everywhere. And actually, they are everywhere. The salesman told us Denver's the capital of the nation for Subaru Foresters. They literally are everywhere. But when you will one thing, you see it everywhere. You see God everywhere. When you are obedient to him, when he's your passion, your love, you see God everywhere. You see him in nature. I mean, for crying out loud, you walk out the door and we have a theater of the grandeur of the glory of God. You see him in history. Why exactly is every town in California named after an angel or a Jesuit missionary? What? You see him at every meal you have. Thank you, Lord, again for your provision. Or you agree with Luther that the most vital proof for the existence of God is beer. You, you see him again in your family. You see him again in your friends. When God is your thing, he's everywhere. And you see him. So my friends, the heart wants what it wants. What do you want? What do you want? If you want God, I'd invite you to pray with me as we bow our heads. Take these words into your heart and give them back to God. It's a prayer from the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I have everything I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And then I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And together we say, amen and amen.